0: Alright, so we are in the book of Ecclesiastes. So you see, I'm not even going to have to get started on prophecy anymore. Maybe that's a good thing, I don't know. But it's still here. Alright, so we started out last week, and what we're trying to do is set the stage for the book. It's because everybody here has looked at this book at least once, and has probably studied it at length. So we're going to look at it from the, the under-the-hood standpoint, like we did with the book of Proverbs. But to me... Like we did with the book of Job. Now, I mentioned this already. I, I compare this with, with the book of Job in a way that when, you, when we get into the mechanics of the book and how it's laid out, you're going to see some things that we also saw in the book of Job. And remember, the book of Job, among many other things, a key point to me anyway, and I made it clear, was those 64 questions that God fired off at Job. And he was a little annoyed at Job. But in those 64 questions, and you remember when, I, when we were learning the book together in detail, Those 64 questions revealed so much about God. It also revealed so much about who Job wasn't. And the whole point of that book, and I remember I said, and it's going to be like this here too. The whole point that I said of the book was summed up at the beginning and at the end, like two bookends. When Job said, my ears had heard of you. Remember, God counted him as righteous. And yet God also said he was a sinner. But he said, my ears had heard of you. But after all of that, he said, now my eyes see you. You know, if you think about it, with Solomon's failed life, this book, Ecclesiastes, reflects the same kind of thing in a sad way because he never recovered from it. But if you look at it, the mechanics of it are going to reveal God. It's going to reveal not just God the way the book of Job did, but it's going to talk about creation, it's going to talk about some of the things that those 64 questions, you know, like those 64 questions, the context was Job, gird your loins, stand up like a man, because I am going to be firing questions at you, and you better just listen and answer me if you can, right, rhetorically. And he says, Job, where were you when I? Because if you were there, then talk to me, to counsel me Job, but if you weren't there, and he says, who, right, exactly. Who gave these animals the capability to do this? And who says to the water, go here and no further? And those were wonderful questions. And, and of course, if you want to study them again, you, you should. I, you know, I mean, it's, it's all there. So we're going to look at this book in the same way because you're going to see how it, it splits up into these sections. And that's how we're going to gain the real, now remember, not only wisdom, but we're going to gain the heart of Solomon. Because like I said, if you look at the three books he wrote, the best way, I think, to look at these three books is The Song of Solomon was the exuberance of youth. It's sort of like the human experience. They, they chronicle the human experience. And then, as you approach middle age, as you're getting older, you've also got a lot of experience under your belt. You've also, hopefully, lived a life where you, you're learning right from wrong. You've been pummeled. You've been rewarded. You have your family. You learn more about life. And, you know, like anybody has said to you, I know they've said to me, if you could be 22 again, would you? I'd say, no, just because I'd have a young body and strength and all the things that I had at 22, I wouldn't have the mind nor the experience. And I bet none of you would trade what you are now, because you, you know what you're headed for anyway, a beautifully resurrected body, but even if you ask secular people who know nothing of the other side of death, uh, of what they could have in Christ, they would say the same thing, that they would not trade what they have. So, in the middle of life is hopefully your wisest and most, and, and you can maybe counsel your children and others with experience. That would be the book of Proverbs, which we studied. And then, as you approach and you get over that middle aged hump, you start seeing, well, you know, the career isn't going to keep on moving forward. There's going to come a time when I don't know what retirement will be like. But you start looking at life very differently. Well, you realize it's not going to be this ever increasing. Gain, even though you knew, you knew it really was not like that, You know, especially living in this country, especially those of us who've been gainfully employed and had good careers or whatever we've done, we've had the opportunity to, to do well. And you're always seeing how there's, no one ever tells you it's going to end. You know, they always, you need to do more and do more. You know what I'm saying? But as you go over that hump and you get past the midlife crisis, which affects each of us in some way, it does, it just does. And you realize, you know, you're humbled by the fact that you're growing older and and all that. You look back and you say, if I only could have, woulda, coulda, shoulda? Or would I change something? There are many things I wouldn't change or some things I would change. In Solomon's case, it's a failed life. And it's it's amplified because he started out with this greatest of gifts that you could have here, is wisdom. That God said was the most that any human being would ever have been endowed with, of course, barring Jesus Christ, because he's God, so you can't count him. Even, even well, we mentioned that even Jesus Christ mentions Solomon in, in all his beauty and his stature, that when he had all the wealth, I mean, he had everything that any human being could ever want, including great wisdom, and he failed miserably. So he ends his life on this down note where basically that book is vanity, vanity, all is vanity, nothing means anything. So we want to look at that book not only in that context, because we haven't haven't really parsed the Song of Solomon yet. That's going to come after. But we did do the book of Proverbs in detail. We're going to do this in that same way. And as you just think of these three books in that way, that's the first thing. The second thing is, this book, and we're going to see a lot of Scripture here that I'm going to go through, which is not even in Ecclesiastes, to support the fact that this book for the dying, for those who do not have Christ. And by the way, the secular, secular people love this book. And I mentioned last week, one example is the song by the Birds from the 1960s. To everything turn, 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 there is a season, right? It's quoted right out of the book because people at least had the modicum of Christianity in this country back in those days. But there are people who are philosophers, you know, secular people, who are even involved in things that no one should be involved with, who actually have looked at this book and have taken things out of it more in some instances, I think in most instances from the research I've done, the little research I've looked into this, they've quoted from this book or used this book in their writings or whatever more than Proverbs see they don't want wisdom they want to make sense out of life and you know the funny thing is is people think secular people think that making sense out of life is wisdom it's not that's what this book is about it has nothing to do with wisdom living life Using proverbs to navigate through life is wisdom, but life itself, or trying to find the meaning of life, seems to be such a noble thing. Everybody wants to be a philosopher, right? Before I was a Christian, I wanted to be a philosopher. And I found out I was wrong on so many things after I became a Christian. And every time, the more I studied the Bible, the more I realized I'm wrong about a lot of things now, except that you know, I have a lot of help here, thankfully, for the, for the word. And so that's what I want us to look at this like. Okay. We also talked about how this all started back at the Garden of Eden. And God, I'm going to just make this statement again. I made it last week, but I want you to think of this. God did two things to prove or to try Adam and Eve. And of course, he knew what was going to happen. After tootling them directly, right? They had two trees. One was the tree of life. And one was the tree of the knowledge. Knowledge, knowledge of good and evil. And he couldn't tempt them with anything else because they had everything else. So what was the one thing that they also had, if you think about it, but they didn't have it in the way they wanted it, which is us? Have you ever wanted to know some some knowledge or some wisdom or some things that you just didn't know, either for your work or for, like, Scripture? Maybe you and I, or I know I've been in, in places where I wasn't spiritually or, you know, mature yet to understand a lot of Scripture, and... Thankfully, God's been hopefully helping with that. But the point is, is that everybody wants knowledge because knowledge is power, and it really is. That's how the occult and the elite are gaining the ground and the traction they are because they fell for the lie. You remember the the video I sent out, the video clip for the movie Prometheus? It's, it's the TED conference, the infamous TED conferences, which I've talked about in my emails. If you don't know what they are, they're just these symposiums that all these people who think they're so smart all the philosophers of the world all the scientists including Rick Warren they all teach each other and they all you know anyway so there's this guy who's the richest man ever ever, I guess walked the face of the earth and his name is Peter Wayland, and this is the genesis of the movie because he's dying but he doesn't want to die so he's got to find our creators and that's the basis of this movie Prometheus but in that clip I showed you what does he say he talks about Fire, Prometheus is the god who brought fire. He stole fire to bring it to human beings and then the whole thing. And then he goes through technology and he finally goes through DNA modification and superhumans. And then he says, which means, we are the gods now. The point is that that lie is from the beginning. From the beginning. And you, So if you eat of this tree, you shall all of a sudden know good from evil, which by the way God's keeping from you. There's knowledge we're not supposed to have including technology, we're not supposed to have. And then your eyes will be open, that's great, and you shall be as God. This is where we are right here. This was Solomon's problem. This is everybody's problem. So the temptation and the lie never changes. Human nature is human nature. And Satan uses the same tactic. All right? So I'm going to just read you here, 1 Corinthians chapter 3.18. You can turn there. I'm just going to read you from 18 to 20, and then just a verse in Proverbs. I'm just going to read them. 1 Corinthians 3.18. Let no man deceive himself. If any man among you seems to be wise in this world, let him become a fool. Now, those are diametrically opposed terms. It's to make the point, right? That he may be wise. It's also akin to this this diametrically opposed term that Jesus uses, which is the same thing, if you think about it, when Jesus says, those who seek to find their life shall lose it, but those who give up their life for my sake shall find it. He's basically saying the same thing here. Those who seek this world, life and and knowledge and, and everything that makes this life so great or complete or people chase after, Become as fools so that you can get true wisdom. Give up your life so that you can get true life. You see the relationship here? This is exactly going against the curse because of the lie which has not changed. That's my point. Verse 19 of 1 Corinthians 3. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. But now you can see after all we've talked about Job and we've talked about Proverbs and just in general how we talk about how God thinks because we want to know and we study toward knowing his heart, his mind, his character and his point of view. Those are the sum total of God's wisdom. We can't know the sum total of God's wisdom but we need to pursue God and that's what we're doing here is pursuing God to understand how he thinks his point of view so that we can gain wisdom through that and parse his words for that. So he's saying here the wisdom of this world is foolish with God for it is written he who takes the wise in their own craftiness and and then again the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise that they are vain. Vanity, vanity, all is vanity. So you see Paul wrote many centuries after Solomon about a thousand or so years, 900 some odd years, right? Nothing's changed. The message has not changed. That's by the way, doesn't this also prove scripture? The thread of all the thoughts in Scripture, run from Genesis right all the way through, and they never change. They golden and silver threads that are never broken. And, and these little things, that, when I knit them together, it's just I, I, I never stop saying, wow. Say again? It gives, it, it gives you goosebumps, and it never stops. And I've been doing this for a decade now, so I can't stop. If, if, even if one person ever comes to a Bible study, I'll still teach something, because I just can't stop. So listen to this, what I said in 1 Corinthians about wisdom versus worldly wisdom versus godly wisdom, right? What I said about gaining your life now or giving it up for the life in Christ, which many people would think is, is a foolish thing to do. Here's one verse that sums it all up. Proverbs 16 and 25. As a matter of fact, this is stated twice in the same exact way in the book of Proverbs. So Proverbs 16:25 is is also exactly the same verse that Solomon wrote. In Proverbs 14 and 12, it's exactly the same verse. So, it must mean something important. If he was so good, he wrote it twice. And here's the verse. There is a way that seems right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. You see, it's not just death, it's the ways. It's how you actually accomplish dying, which is what every human being does. So, we're looking to to Solomon, who wrote that, with his wisdom, and we're going to see that he actually uses Ecclesiastes to document A science experiment, if you will, in this whole thing that we just laid out. This is what this is all about, and this is how it fascinates me. We're going to look at the book like that, okay? The major theme of Ecclesiastes is man trying to be happy without God, and how truly absurd that is. But I want you to see that that's just scratching the surface. Hopefully, we've set the stage for that now. There's more to it than that, a lot more. And you know, if you think about it, when we start seeing Solomon put a lot of work and a lot of time into this experiment <laughs> he did right he spent a lot of money so if it was just hey isn't it obvious because there's nothing new under the Sun right so he and he even says that in here so he knew that, late, that life was vanity but why did he go through all of this because it's very important to prove to the human being that God is not lying that God's not kidding and we as Christians or especially because non Christians have an excuse we don't have an excuse To live life as if we're charmed, and I'm not saying anybody here does that, but we know a lot of people who do. 75% of the people in this country, by a poll, right, still call themselves Christian. And they have no clue that they're cursing themselves. You're better off never mentioning the name of Christ than blaspheming his name by saying you are his and live like everybody else, not caring about this stuff. I mean, that's really what blasphemes God's name, is when we do not understand these things that we're told here. Give your life up for Christ, otherwise you'll lose it. The wisdom of this world is foolishness, so study scripture. But no, people will study all of these other books and all of these other sources because of all these other fools who call themselves Christian, who instruct them on how to live. Why don't you just read your Bible? Hey, it worked before. These are the people who I believe blaspheme the name of God. If you're not going to come in the name of God in truth and in Christ, you're better off not mentioning his name. It's not just cursing in God's name or using it. That's named in vain. Oh, in vain. What we're talking about here. Never use God's name in vain, and that's blaspheming the Holy Spirit. It would be better, when it's It would be better than nobody. a little Millstone than offending these little ones. Right, but it's the same thing. It's the same exact concept. Very good. Okay. So, Solomon states that he intentionally set his hand, like we just said into trying to, everything possible. Now, here's a man with pretty much almost unlimited resources. I mean, if you think about it, right? And he's going to do this. So I think it's probably going to idea to heed. It's sort of like those of us who, who you know, been in, uh, I don't want to say, the, the, the scientific field or, you know, where, where there's a lot of people who, Make, experiment, and write. And then they have someone, let's say you write a paper on cold fusion, and you write a paper on cold fusion, and you write a paper on, on the basics of cold fusion, and you write a paper on, on splitting atoms, and you write a paper on something related to that, right? So what you do as all of these learned high highfalutin people, but what they do is they peer review everybody else's work to prove. And actually, what's God's standard for that peer review? There's wisdom in a multitude of counsel. You just got to make sure your counsel's right, which is, of course, they don't get it. So I would say that Solomon did this, and this book, we're going to peer review. Because, you see, we don't have the wisdom of Solomon, but we have the Holy Spirit to discern what he's trying to show us here. Because, like I said, there are a lot of secular people throughout history who have used this book for their own ends, thinking they're wise and invoking some of the sayings here, but they're fools because it's not a peer review, but we can, I think, with the Holy Spirit, look at this that way. That's how serious this book is, so that's how we're going to look at it, hopefully. I think this kind of thing is required study for Christians. Everybody wants to look at the New Testament, and that's fine. You know, Have Christ for a while, learn of Him, become a Christian, you know, know what it's like to be a Christian. You know, well, it takes time. It takes all of us time, right? But At some point, I think everybody should be instructed to look at Proverbs. Really, look at Solomon's life. Look at who he was. Look at Proverbs. Look at Ecclesiastes, and compare, contrast. Look at your life and compare them to these books. Find out how meaningful it's going to make your life. This is where the rubber meets the road in living life. Those books, including Song of Solomon. All right. Ecclesiastes chapter one and verse twelve. We're going to read from verse twelve to uh, two verse ten. So here we go. I, the preacher, was king over Israel and Jerusalem, I and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom concerning all that is done under heaven. I think we read some of this last week, but I'll, I'll continue, because um, this, int- this is a good introduction. It's going to tell you exactly the setup. This is sort of like um, the executive summary. You ever hear of an executive summary in a document? Like if you're going to have some work done or if you're, you're, you're going to buy something, you're a, a procurer of something, right? or you're going to buy a, buy a service from a service provider, the executive summary gives you the upshot of what this is all about and why you want this, why you're getting this. But this is the upshot. Remember, we're peer reviewers now. We're, 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 this is what we're doing here. So let's read it that way. He says, And I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom concerning all that is done under heaven. It is a sore tra- travail that God has given to the sons of men to be exercised therewith. I have seen all the works that are done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and striving after the wind. Now, you can pretty much stop there. He's already made the point, right? But that's what the executive summary is supposed to do. It's supposed to make the point. And then the details follow. At least you can wrap context around what you're, what you're about to talk about. So you see the standpoint from which he's coming. Let's skip to verse 17. He's going to tell you now how he decided he's going to set up his experimental science project here. And I applied my heart to no wisdom. That's the specific purpose statement right that's what he wanted to do and to know madness and folly. so he also wanted to know you know if you're gonna know something the better you can better know it typically by knowing the antithesis of that thing isn't that correct mm-hmm. if you wanna know light better know dark right because if I look at let's say this light this kind kinda of a yellowish tint to it but if I compare it to let's say that wall which is yellow this looks light to that. It seems like everything is relative. So it's always good to have a contrast of the, the negative to get the full value of the positive. That, that's And we see that in the scripture a lot, right? When God talks about light versus darkness and evil versus good, and, and the, the components of those things. So that's what he's trying to say here. He, so he's not only known to, uh, to, to know wisdom and to also know the antithesis of wisdom, which is madness and foolishness. That's quite the science experiment. So he's setting up a control here. Does it sound great? I look at it this way and I'm saying, this is perfect. This is exactly how you do science. And I'm no rocket scientist. But I did stay at a Holiday Inn actually two weeks ago. <laughs> I did. I stayed at the Holiday Inn. <laughs> All right. And I perceived that this also was a striving effort. And so even this experiment was a waste of his time. But he's still going to do it. For in much wisdom is much grief. And we know what knowledge and wisdom is bringing on this world. It also means, now think of this. I was trying to make the statement last week, and I realized, because I had to hear myself again when I edited last week's recording, that I didn't really make the point as much as I wanted to make it, so I'm going to say it like this. If you look at wisdom, we know that in, in much knowledge of wisdom, there's grief. And look at the way the world runs. The more they seem to know, the less they seem to be able—I mean, they can get old data— and you get data and you mine it, you, 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 can, you push it and pull it and torque it, especially with computing systems, you can come up with a lot of information and then you can turn that into useful things, which we might call wisdom, understanding, deep understanding. But how about this? Isn't wisdom for you and me painful when we know the truth and we see someone not living that truth, especially those that we love, especially those, as like I said before, which is the worst, who call themselves children of the light in Jesus Christ and they don't act like it, they don't have a clue. And they're fat, dumb, and happy, just doing life, and in the Lord, and they have no idea they're on that wide path of destruction, and you pain for them. Sometimes that is that millstone that are, you know, around the neck. Maybe I would rather not know what I know. Sometimes. you ever feel that way? That's one of the things I think that this makes very clear. When Jesus says, before you take up your cross and follow me, you better count the cost. Because I will not be pleased by anybody who turns and looks back, right? But sometimes, man, it's so painful when people spank me and they spank you for telling them the truth because all they want to hear is how good they are. All they want to hear is how fine everything is. All they want to go is on the next picnic. Or All they want to go is the next Bible study that someone else has given that says, you're good, you're fine. You know, go have a cup of tea and, and just read this canned Bible study and you'll be fine. Just have a purpose in your life. We'll tell you what that purpose is. I mean, how much have we talked about that? This is the kind of understanding that, you know what? If I didn't know what I know now, I would be fine. I was fine when I was in the law. Right? When I told you I went to a legalistic church, my wife grew up in that. But it pains me so much when there are people still living that lie, like her parents. And that guy who I told you was a friend of mine who said to me straight out, you're going to hell. Because you eat pork, and worse, you don't keep the Sabbath. Well, which one am I going to hell for? You're going to hell for both. So I might as well eat pork on Saturday. (laughs) I'm going to have a nice barbecue where I'm going. (laughs) Yeah, you've heard that old adage, right? I'd rather rule in hell than serve in heaven. You know, they have no clue. There's not going to be any rulership. Even Satan is not going to. It's going to be helter-skelter. And everybody's going to have a resurrected body. They're going to have a new body. One that's fit for heaven, ours will be like Jesus Christ. And one that's, that's fit for eternity and suffering in hell, that's gonna be twisted and torqued and pummeled. And who knows the ungodly things that people are gonna be doing to each other, those bodies will never die. Just like Gehenna. What did Jesus say about Gehenna? You know what Gehenna was? Remember the Gehenna fire? Outside the city wall in Jerusalem was the dump. And they kept it burning all the time. So he says, hell's going to be like where the fire is never quenched, but the worm never dies. Because the worms were continuing making compost. So they would get the compost, and the hot fire, of course the worms weren't up at the top, they were in the bottom. And everybody was happy in that flame, but nobody ruled. Nobody ruled. It was a dung heap. All right, skipping the verse 17. Okay, uh, let's see. Uh, For in much wisdom is much grief, and he that increases with him increases sorrow. So I guess we pretty much understand what that possibly means now, at least the way I look at it. Chapter 2 and verse 1, I said in my heart, come now, I will prove thee with mirth, therefore enjoy pleasure, and behold, this also is vanity. So now he's starting to say how I'm going to do this experiment, how he's setting himself up to get ready to do this. I said of laughter, it is mad, and of mirth, what good is it? I searched in my heart how to cheer my flesh with wine. My heart yet guided me with wisdom. So in all of these experiments, which he's starting to get into now, he kept his cool. He kept sort of a, 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 a scientific detachment from it all. He didn't get too, yes, analytical, thank you, that's what I'm looking for, exactly. An analytical detachment, this is a real experiment here. And how to lay hold on Father till I might see what was good for the sons of men that they should do under heaven all the days of their lives. Now, if he would have found that secret, what do you think he would have done with it? If he could actually find that? Well, I think he would have given it to his subjects in Israel to make them prosper. And maybe we wrote a couple of books, papyrus. Because that, be that would be like the Holy Grail, right? I mean, think about it. What should men do? What is the, the whole purpose of man? Well, we're going to find out. And you know what? It's so simple. That's why people can't get it. Even Christians can't get it. We beat ourselves up because we don't get the simple truth. And we're going to go over that. All right. Chapter 2 and verse 4, I made me great works, I builded me houses, I planted me vineyards, I made me gardens and parks, and I planted trees in them and all kinds of fruit. I made pools of water to water there, <laughs> to water there from the forest where the trees were reared. I bought men servants and maid servants and had servants born in my house. Also, I had great possessions of herds and flocks above all that were before me in Jerusalem. Wealthy beyond compare. Did all of these marvelous things. And he was a great poet too. He was, he was, this man was absolutely unbelievable. And he had all of the material backing and all of the people around him to do all of that for him. I gathered me also silver and gold and the treasure of kings and of provinces. You know, when those other kings and queens and so forth visited him, they also brought him more stuff. I got me men singers and women singers and the lights of the sons of men, musical instruments and, and that of all sorts. So I was great. I'd say, and increased more than all that were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me. So he still got this analytical detachment, even though can you imagine having even, I mean, I can't even understand. Can, can anybody have a fathom at all what, what he has here? And whatsoever mine eyes desired, I kept not from them. That's probably not a good idea for most of us. I withheld not my heart from any and I'm saying, any he joined. hey, he had all these concubines and wives, and I mean, everything, yeah, that's right. For my heart rejoiced because of all my labor, and this was my portion from all my labor. You know what he's saying here? Just rejoicing. That's all he had. That was his portion. That was it. Because everything he did was almost valueless at that point because he had it all. We, it's sort of like, remember I've said to you, I, I've asked this question, I, I know I've mentioned it in my class a number of times, the Maslow Pyramid. You ever hear the Maslow Pyramid? You haven't heard of it? You guys have heard of it, right? did we talk about this? The Maslow Pyramid? There was a psychologist, psychiatrist, psychologist, uh, in the 20s named, I think his name was Alexander, his last name definitely was Maslow, and he'd made a pyramid. It has nothing to do with the occult, folks, but it's a very good pyramid. And this is what he's talking about here. The pyramid is called the hierarchy of man's needs. And I didn't learn this in college, only because I didn't go to college, but that's beside the point. But I did learn it. It's really, really good, and you can track everything, even a nation. Everything runs on a bell curve, right? And you look at the United States or any great nation will say this nation, and it's a bell curve. If you take that bell curve from bondage coming out of England all the way up to all the, all the pain and suffering to get to the pinnacle of what we were, and now we're into complacency, and we're, now we're dying, and now we're so scared. Any, we're not anything like we were before. You take that bell curve, so it's like this. And you put this pyramid in the middle. So the bell curve comes up the slope of the pyramid. At the pinnacle of the pyramid is the top of the bell curve, which is where we reached our pinnacle a number of years ago now, back in the 50s probably, I think. And then we start going down real quick. Okay? And then you're sloping down the side of the pyramid till you get to the base. Well, what is that pyramid? Because it maps so well. The pyramid very basically is this. And you should look it up. Look up the Maslow pyramid. Look it up on the Internet. You'll, you'll, you'll get an education about this. The the, the hierarchy of human needs basically is this, okay? If you can't breathe, you're not worried about falling in love, having that nice steak. You're not worried about being hungry. I'm not worried about having children. But if I can breathe okay and my physiology is okay, then I start needing things like clothes, food, shelter. If I have those needs met, well, what's the next thing? Maybe my own home. Maybe decorating it. Maybe then after I have those needs met, I can start thinking about falling in love, having a companion. You see how this hierarchy of needs met? And every time you go up a level is because every single thing from bare survival all the way up to the level you're at is met. And that's why you keep going up into all these things. And the pinnacle, the very pinnacle of this is called self-actualization. This is where Solomon was. And what you'll find... I have a book, by the way, by David Jeremiah. It's it's a good book. It's about this book. It's about Ecclesiastes. And he quotes in there one of these men who actually climbed... She's got it! Boom! (laughs) Looks Illuminati, doesn't it? Yeah, so it's all the... uh, Yeah. Yeah, self-actualization. That's a pretty tall piece of the pyramid. Yeah, okay. Physiological, safety loving love and belonging then self-esteem and then self-actualization thank you and then what happens after the self-actualization where else do you go you realize that to get to the point of of wanting to climb mount everest just because you want to conquer mount everest not a bad undertaking there are men who go into football and train all their lives to go to the super bowl and get that ring the problem is those that are good enough to actually do it they're at the point of self-actualization because no one's going to care about football if they don't have enough to eat. No one's going to care about making it big in baseball and making it to the World Series if they're having a heart attack and they can't—they barely know if they're going to live or if they can't find clothes. You see what I'm saying here? This is where Solomon was at. He is at the point of self-actualization. He needs nothing. Matter of fact, isn't that where Adam and Eve were? Nothing new under the sun with human nature, is it? Matter of fact, isn't that where Satan was? What was the pinnacle of God's creation? Satan. And what did God say about Satan? You were created perfect. You walked among the fiery stones. That's when the Garden of Eden is a mineral garden before his throne because it says you walked among the fiery stones before the throne of God. And what happened? Until iniquity was found in you. Now he is at, um, he's been cast out of heaven. I guess he's got cast down the stack on that pyramid. And now he's furious. Because he doesn't like the fact that we're higher on that pyramid than he is. And Jesus Christ is taking care of us. He is our self-actualization. Jesus will not allow us to get up to that point. Because then we become like him. That's pride. Pride goeth before a fall. Self-actualization says, like Peter Wayland in the movie Prometheus like Satan, like Adam and Eve, like Solomon. It's lonely at the top, it's also deadly at the top. So like this person who climbed Mount Everest, they have this exhilaration. You know what it takes to get, I don't even know what it takes to get up there. But you gotta have a lot of planning, and a lot of people died with all of doing that, right? You finally get up there, you plant your flag, and you look around, and then you say, wow, I can't believe I made it. And you sit there, and you're probably elated for maybe a couple hours then 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 why taking the view take a few pictures put your put your mark there now you got to get back down which ain't going to be a lot easier than getting back up now what' what are you going to do after that w- w- see this is vanity vanity this is what this is about do you see where I'm going with this this is doing us a favor because you and I will never reach that place never I've never done anything spectacular and I probably like I'm sure I won't <laughs> Look at me, do I look like some spectacular? But that's okay, because we we can learn from the people who do the spectacular outside of God's will and inside of God's will through His Word to show us that we're okay not reaching for that brass ring. Giving up our life to find it in Christ. Giving up the wisdom of this world which will bring us some of the things that we think we want as foolishness so that we can have the wisdom of God in His Word. That's what it is. That's why Paul could be in jail and find himself content in having plenty and having and being in want. Because he wasn't like this. And in Paul's mind, the experiment was already done. He he already knew what Solomon was trying to figure out. And that's basically what you and I can know. So I was great and increased more than all that were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me. And whatsoever mine eyes desired, I kept not from them. I withheld not my heart from any joy. Okay, we know that in contrast to the book of proverbs this book is truly an instructive sermon with a definite end game proverbs was just his musing about wisdom and how to live life this is an experiment with an end in mind i want to find out what is good and what is not what man is here for what am i supposed to do to be happy we can find an example that a broken Solomon seems to hold himself as an example for us in this case study as he's going through this experiment for the admonishment of those who will admire him centuries later. And I admire him. I don't admire how he ended up, but I, I look at what this man accomplished, what he did with it. And this book of experimentation, because I admired him for the book of Proverbs. Well, let's go to Ecclesiastes chapter, Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse 13 through 16. Listen to this. Listen to what he actually comes to the conclusion here of. A couple of things. Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse 13. Better is a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king. That sounds almost like a proverb, doesn't it? What is he actually saying here? He's saying he was better off, and you and I are better off being Foolish and young in, in you know, and and having our future ahead of us and, and having the ability to make things go the way they should in Christ or in God, than an old and foolish king who threw that all away. So better than an old and foolish king who knows not how to receive admonition anymore. Once you and I stop receiving admonition from those who we should be able to trust through wisdom, if I receive admonition from Someone who follows, I don't know, someone like Joel Olstein, if I read a book which I don't. I shouldn't take that seriously, neither should you. But if I receive admonition from God's word, or from someone who I trust, who I know has wisdom, I should take it. What he's saying here is, he forgot how to do that. He became so great, he didn't want to take admonition anymore. For out of prison he came forth to be a king. Yes, even in his kingdom he was born poor. I saw all the living that walk under the sun, that they were with... Uh, That they were with the youth, the second that stood up in his stead. There was no end of all the people, even of all them, over whom he was. The king he's talking about. Yet they that came after shall not rejoice in him. Surely it is all vanity and striving. after. What he's basically saying is, you know that song by the Eagles, Johnny Come Lately? Remember that song from the 70s? Yeah. There's a new kid in town. Everybody loves you till somebody new comes along. That's what he's saying here. I wonder if they looked at the book of Ecclesiastes. All right, another 10 minutes. With this, Ecclesiastes can be a very misunderstood book, and that's why I'm spending so much time setting the basis and how we should approach this with wisdom that we already have from above. Because without that wisdom to start out with, I don't believe anybody should be looking at this book. Because it's going to, it's going to depress you, and it's going to show you something that you should already know. And it's going, to, it's going to actually prove that there's nothing here. So people are going to even strive more to prove that book wrong. And look what the elite do to make their life worthwhile. And then to gain themselves eternal life by directed evolution, by technology, because they don't want to die. When they say, God said, you shall surely die. While it seems not much more than a sad book detailing a pessimistic observation of the human condition... This is not only an incomplete understanding, which I hope we're starting to see now, but it greatly diminishes the value of this book. So we're not going to look at it pessimistically anymore. If you ever have, you need to stop now. After all we've just talked about. Solomon's instruction to us in this book does not stop at death of the physical life. This is the point of this book. This is the point. In fact, the main thrust of the book is by its design, and we're going to hopefully see some of that as we go along here, that nothing makes sense and nothing has real value in this life unless you are saved in Christ, and that includes the Old Testament people who knew of the coming Messiah and believed. So it's bravely honest in its writing. I'm going to give you a sample of some scriptures that, that show something here. While we're to cherish life it is not something that we should regard too closely. You know, every hear see, I love these little songs, right? Some of them have some, some truth in them. This is a song, I think, from the 80s. I forgot who made it but, it, but some of the lyrics go, Hold on loosely, but don't let go. And Does that sound familiar? Hold on loosely, but don't let Never mind. But thank you. But see, that's, that's, if I, see, you're probably better off if I, under, if I remember the artist and the song, because then I don't have to sing it to you, but you know what I'm saying. But here's what scripture plainly shows. I'm going to read you some things from Luke. I'm going to read you a, a composite. This is from Luke, from Mark, and from John and Matthew. I'm going to read it as if it's one scripture. Okay? If any man come to me, of course, this is Christ speaking, and hates not his father and mother, or, you know, is at odds with them because of the truth, and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life also he cannot be my disciple. And whosoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. So likewise... Whoever he be of you that forsakes not all that he has, he cannot be my disciple. For what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? For whoever shall save his life shall lose it, but whoever shall lose his life for my sake, the same shall save it. Whosoever shall seek to save his life shall lose it, and whosoever shall lose his life to preserve it, He that loveth his life shall lose it, and he who hateth his life in this world shall keep it unto eternal life. Enter now you into the straight gate, or the constricted gate. For wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and many there be which go in thereat. Because straight is the gate and narrow is the way which leads unto life, and few be there that find it. Now I just knitted together some scriptures from the Gospels that say the same thing. But didn't this just sum up what Solomon says he's looking for? So here's a peek at the end of the book. Here's the sum total of it. It's obvious. Ecclesiastes 12, 13 and 14. Even though this is not the end of the book, this is what he actually says. It's sort of like, you spoiled it for me. You told me the end of the movie before I got to the end, before I watched it. This is the end of the matter. Hmm. All has been heard. After everything's been said and done, what does he say? Very simply, fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every work into judgment with every hidden thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. Simple. Very simple. I want to read you some scripture here. This is going to take two minutes. You're not going to turn to these because I've got a bunch of them. The, now, wasn't that a very simple concept? Do you think it might have been said, oh, a couple of times in the scripture? Before Solomon? After Solomon? Around Solomon? Why was this wise man such a hardhead? And why is Israel in the state it's in? God says, now remember, the book of Deuteronomy was when they had decided they were going to be God's people. And he's now taking them and he's going to train them in being God's people. So he's going to tell them things that they should do and things that they should not do. So this is part of what this is about. So I'm going to just read you some things. This is in Deuteronomy, it's different places. You have a vouch Jehovah this day to be thy God, which basically says, okay, you have selected to enter this covenant that you would walk in, this is Moses saying to them, so he says that you will walk in his ways and keep his statutes. Yes, we did, Moses. Remember, count the cost, because didn't we say this exact thing to Jesus Christ? It's no different for us. So when you were saved, when you agreed that you knew that that was the truth, Jesus Christ, and you went to him and I went to him, we said we will walk in his ways, we will keep his statutes and his commandments and his ordinances and hearken unto his voice. Right? And you shall keep his statutes and his commandments, which I, Moses, commanded you this day, that it may go well with you, and with your children after you, and that you may prolong your days in the land, which Jehovah thy God gives you forever. Know therefore that God, he is God, the faithful God, who keeps covenants and loving kindness with them, that, the condition. Even Jesus says, if you love me, you will. Finish the sentence. Okay, so even back then, before they knew who the Messiah was, before this is in Deuteronomy, he says, God who keeps covenant and loving kindness with them that love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. And you shall remember all the ways which your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness that he might humble you to prove you to know what is in your heart. That goes for us too. Jesus is always tried and reigns. Whether you should keep his command, whether you're going to keep his commandments or not. Therefore, you shall commandment, you shall love your God, and keep his charge, and his statutes, and his ordinances, and commandments always. It's a statement, not a suggestion. It's a very strong statement. You shall walk after Jehovah your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice, and you shall serve him and cleave unto him. Now next week we're going to show the cause and effect. If Israel decided to do these things, and I remember, what, did, what was this all about? We just read in Ecclesiastes. This is the end of the matter. Fear God, keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. We see in Deuteronomy, it's the whole duty of anybody who calls themselves God people. We see in the New Testament, which we're going to talk about next week, it's the whole duty of us in Christ. It's actually very simple. But remember, the last thought I want to leave you with is Christ, did he come to abolish the law? What did he come to do? Fulfill it, which means the way we keep the law in Christ is really the only efficacious way to do it. That's why when when you were here last time, we were talking about the holy days. We had a little sidebar conversation about the holy days and when Christ might come because the holy days map out the whole plan of God, right? And so, yeah, he could come on trumpets, he could, you know. But the point is, is that, and this is, this is what I want to make here. The way we see Solomon going about his experimentation, which I think now is kind of foolish in a way, because you didn't have to do all that, just read Deuteronomy. You're telling me the end of the matter is what you already should have known, which what you did know. Hmm. So maybe he was starting to go wayward when he did his experiment. By the way, don't we do the same thing we want to experiment, see how far we can go? Okay. But this whole experimentation, this whole, what I just read you in Deuteronomy, everything for them was a physical foretype. The law was physical. Nothing physical matters other than a being a teacher, a shower of how cause and effect work. That's why you touch a hot stove, you get burned. That's why you learn not to touch a hot stove. That's why if you, and we saw in Proverbs going, like for, for men and for women, you go to someone wayward and you start having relationships out of marriage and all these kind of things, right? It's, it's death. How much do we have to be warned? But it's all physical. It's all physical. But the true adultery is when we turn our back on Jesus Christ and go off after other gods. You see how much more... Because it's a spiritual sense of what people do physically. It's worse. So the law is amplified. The law was actually made to not be in the physical form. This is how beautifully God designed all this, right? Everything physical must fail. Everything physical is a four type and is not up to par at all. What does it say in 1 Peter about this whole world? It's reserved unto judgment. There is no future. Don't worry about green. Don't worry about the planet. I'm not saying to go off and you know do some bad things. You know, pick up your trash and stuff like that. That's all I'm saying. Solomon tested all of these physical things and using the physical world around him and his physical senses and his physical delights and he can't find satisfaction in the physical. But what we find in the spiritual, that's why you can take someone like Johnny Tada Erickson. You are familiar with her, right? This woman is a paraplegic and she is more joyful than people who have muscular bodies and have health. Why? Because her joy is not bound in the physical. That's Solomon's mistake. And that's what that science experiment shows me. That's why Deuteronomy, we can look at that as the same thing. It's very simple. The end of the matter. Love God. Fear Him. Keep His commandments. Keep His precepts. And everything's going to be fine in the end. And don't you think that that's... It's just really been in my head lately that... You brought it out, basically. But the problem with the Christian world right now is that we
1: love God, but we don't fear Him anymore. Right. Amen. We don't
0: fear Him. him. We don't even want to know Him. And that's the apostasy, period. That's right. You hit it right. We don't try to keep His commandments. Right. We don't think they're necessary. Right. Yeah. Actually, what we've done, to both your points perfectly, what we've done is we've allowed the trickster to trick us with His people. You see, we think we're keeping His commandments by doing good. Remember, this is what the Jew does. The Jew's sacrifice now, because there is no temple, is good works. So that's what you're saying. That's why it sounds so good when people say, you have a purpose in life, you must help. You must, not, not that the things are wrong. But that's, that's, this is the point, so you're exactly right. This is the problem. I was thinking about that word fear, and I, I had studied that. Really it was like it means respect. It's like right. a, a, a deep respect for you God. Know, like not like, like you know, you're gonna bang me over the head if I don't do this. Right. And a lot of people don't get that. They don't, you're absolutely right. Fear like well I gotta do this because God's gonna do something bad to me or allow something bad to happen. Well, like an example I heard was you don't you aren't afraid of a knife, but you have that help and respect for what it can do. There you go. That's, that's <laughs> Amen, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Guns don't kill people. People with guns kill people. Same thing. Yeah. You're right. And that is the thing, and you see, that healthy respect is gone when people use God as the, uh, the, the, the tooth fairy. Yeah. Yeah. And in these churches which sing praises and it's all about them, you notice how the church and this is why I sent all those emails, which I'm not going to do anymore, because people aren't listening. You notice, as of the last, maybe this real mostly like toward the end of last year and this year, my emails have not been so much about what's been coming. It's about this church the church, it's about scripture, it's about hunkering down and getting ready for the end, where we have to be found in the Lord, cleaving to Him because if we're just singing praises and, oh, God makes it grow because this church is so good, if we think our job is to, no, our job is not to go save people, our job is to fear God, keep His commandments, keep His precepts, and give the gospel, that's the job. The job was never to attract people like flies to Christ, the Holy Spirit can do that. This is so this so you, see you're all validating exactly what we're talking about here and that's why this knowledge this knowledge which doesn't it seem rare how many people do you know right now Christian that you know as a Christian friend brother sister even pastor even elder or whatever they call themselves a leader could you go to and have a conversation like this with right now I don't know of any but we as as average Little human beings who are nothing can have this conversation and have the wisdom. And this is why Solomon said, and wisdom itself too is painful. So this is it. So we'll continue next week. Hope I didn't depress nobody.